as well. But before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can come before you in worship and in praise this evening. We pray and we ask that you will speak to us through your inspired word as we look at a portion of Paul's letter to Timothy this evening. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So what is the Bible? What, in your honest opinion, is the Bible? Do you think it's an old piece of literature, which was once valuable but is now slightly out of date? Do you think it's relevant? Do you even think it's important? Do you think it's authoritative? What is the Bible? Dr. William Evans was a pastor in America for many years. He was an unusual man. He wrote over 50 books. He memorized the entire version of the entire New Testament in the American Standard Version, and he memorized the whole of the King James Bible. One Sunday, Dr. William, as he was called, was the guest preacher at First Presbyterian in Hollywood, where his son was the pastor. There was a large congregation on the day, and he was due to preach on the virgin birth. The congregation fell deathly silent when Dr. William raised his Bible. He opened it at the account of the birth of Jesus. He tore out the pages, and he dropped them to the floor. And he said, if we can't believe in the virgin birth, let's tear it out the Bible. Then he turned to the resurrection chapters, and he tore them out and he dropped them to the floor, and he said, if we can't believe in the resurrection, let's tear it out of the Bible. He did the same with the pages that spoke about miracles. He did the same with the pages that spoke about anything supernatural, and so on and so on. And the floor was littered with torn pages. And finally, he held up the only remaining portion, and he said, and this is all we have left the Sermon on the Mount. That has no authority for me if a divine Christ didn't preach it, and he dropped it to the floor. He said a few more words, and he closed in prayer. Now, Dr. William was making a point, and he was making a point that the Bible, God's Word, has authority over us because it is just that. It is God's Word. It isn't authoritative because it has an independent authority. It is authoritative because it is God's word. It carries God's authority. So we don't get to pick and choose the bits we do or do not like in the Bible. We don't get to stand in judgment over the Bible. It stands in judgment over us. And the reason it stands in judgment, in authority over us, is because of what Paul says in the passage that Fiona read earlier on. Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. So look at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now in this passage, I don't know if you noticed, but Paul doesn't actually defend that statement. He just assumes that it's true. So he doesn't lay out the case for the Bible really being the inspired God-breathed word. And it's a compelling case, but he doesn't address it. He just takes it for granted. He takes it as a given, and then he unpacks the implications. So that's what we're going to do tonight as well. 
So tonight's sermon isn't mainly about whether the Bible truly is or is not God's word. We've looked at that many times in the past. Tonight's sermon is about the implications of the Bible being God's word or of being God-breathed, as Paul put it. But what does that really mean, God-breathed? Your words are you-breathed, if you will. Thoughts arise in your mind, they're filtered, converted into words, and conveyed out by your breath. Now, if you're anything like me, then your filter is of dubious quality, and all manner of stuff sometimes comes out of your mouth. But be that as it may, your words nonetheless are you-breathed. The Bible is God-breathed. It conveys the thoughts of God transcribed into words for us, usually through a human agent, but not always. So sometimes God simply did this by dictation. So for example, Moses captured the Ten Commandments as they were spoken to him, word for word. Even more directly, I don't know if you recall, but in Daniel, you read how God himself wrote those terrifying words on the wall for Belshazzar, many, many tikal parson. You have been weighed and found wanting. And in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 2, John sees Jesus in a vision and Jesus says to him, to the church in Ephesus, write this. To the church in Smyrna, write this. And he dictates. It's sometimes directly written or di dictated by God. But at the other end of the spectrum, we have, for example, Luke's ordinary research for writing his gospel. Right, so keep your place in Timothy and turn to Luke chapter 1, page 1025. Luke chapter 1, page 1025. Reading from verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke was basically a superb investigative reporter. He researched the facts, he read the accounts that others had written, he interviewed the witnesses and he recorded the events in the gospel that we now have. And we're also given hints of other ways in which God communicated with the human authors. We read about dreams, we read about visions, we read about them hearing God's voice directly, and we read about them, obviously, we read about some of the men who were with Jesus himself, who saw what he did, who heard what he said, and who recorded it for us. So God's words, God's message was captured by men recording what they were told to write or what they saw or what they heard, just as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking this was just a case of God kind of inspiring them at the time to write, right? He didn't just pluck someone out of the crowd infuse him with the required knowledge, put a quill in his hand and say, start writing. The person was prepared. It was planned. And if we look back at God's hand in the lives of some of these authors, we can see how he gets them ready. 
His oversight and his direction over the life of every author meant that their personality, their background, their training, their ability to evaluate events in the world around them, their access to information, their judgment over that information, their individual circumstances they were in when they wrote, those were all exactly what God wanted them to be. So that when they actually came to the point of putting pen to paper, they were prepared. Their words were fully their own words, but they were also fully the words that God wanted them to write. So with most of Scripture, the human personality, the writing style, the intent of the author was preserved by God without overriding them, but as was the integrity of what God wanted them to write. We can get a little bit closer to understanding that if you keep your place in Timothy and turn to page 1082, John chapter 14. And this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. Page 1082. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. This is verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you, is what Jesus tells them. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter also gives us a really helpful statement when he says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own inspiration, interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's talking primarily about the Old Testament, but it applies to the New as well. So with those two passages, and with others in the Bible, we're told that the origin of Scripture was God. We're told that men were prepared by God during the course of their lives, and, we were told, and we're told they then wrote as they carried along by God the Holy Spirit who taught them everything they needed to know and reminded them of everything they needed to recall so they could record it. And all of that without violating their experiences or their personalities. Okay. Now, if you have a perfect but a loving God over all creation, which we do, and if God decides to speak to you through the inspired word of many authors, which he did, then wouldn't you expect that word to both be utterly simple, because he wants as many as possible to understand it, and impossibly deep, because it's the thoughts of God? It would be both those things. And that's exactly what we find. It is utterly simple, and it is impossibly deep. Scripture reflects the character of a God who cannot lie, so it's historically accurate, it's faithful, and it's truthful. Scripture reflects the character of a God who never changes, so it is internally consistent with itself to an impossible degree for a book written by 66 authors over 1,500 years. Scripture reflects the character of a God who is sovereign over everything. 
So it contains hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled to the letter hundreds of years later. Scripture reflects the character of a God who is loving and forgiving and wants to save, so it continues to transform the lives of millions of people as it always has done. Through Scripture you will find salvation, and in it you will find a majesty and a beauty and a depth that seems never to end and is without equal. Now, I'm not a Doctor Who fan, although there are some of you here who are, I believe. But I've seen enough to know that a TARDIS would be a really cool thing to own. <laughs> well, the closest you will get to a TARDIS is that book in front of you. Getting to know the Bible is like opening a door to the TARDIS and finding an impossibly large room. It's like going in, opening another door, or finding an impossibly large room, and going in and opening another door and finding an impossibly large room, and on and on and on. And one of the massive benefits of preparing sermons is that you're forced to dig really deep into a passage. And what you soon discover is that no matter how deep you go, there's still more to go. And eventually you just have to end. No matter how deep you dig, and no matter how many holes you dig. And once the sermon's prepared, by the way, there's an awful lot of holes that never went anywhere, but that's another story. We could preach on this same passage for another year of Sundays and still not come to the end of it. But a five-year-old can understand its essential truths. It's utterly simple, and it's impossibly deep. But none of that will convince the skeptic. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the Bible, and I've paraphrased it slightly. You may be moved by the testimony of Christians to a high and lofty view of the Bible. You may be moved by how glorious it is, by how powerful the truths within it are, by how majestic the style of it is, by how impossibly harmonious the different parts of it are, by how widely it acknowledges God by how it reveals the only way to God and by the many other incomparable wonders it contains. You may regard the perfection of all of this as abundant evidence that it is the Word of God. But despite all of that, the only way to be fully persuaded and assured of this infallible truth and of the divine authority of the Bible is by an inward work of the Holy Spirit as he bears witness by and with the Word in your heart. Unless you read it, and unless you ask God to show you, to send his spirit to enlighten you, you won't get it. That's the only way that any of us get to understand. So that's what the Bible is. God's perfect, breathed-out word, simple enough for a five-year-old, but impossible for us to fully grasp. But what does that mean practically? What did that mean for Paul and for Timothy? What does it mean for us here and now, for you and your situation at home or at work or at uni or lying at home on bed tomorrow if you're a student? <laughs> Unlike some of us. Put another way, what's in it that's so important? Well, for a start, there are the answers to the most difficult questions we have. In Matthew chapter 22, we read about how a Pharisee who really knew his Old Testament law walked up to Jesus and decided to test him. So he asked him a question. And he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The two most important commandments in the Bible are love God and love your neighbor. Everything else flows from there. The question is, how? How do I even get to know God, much less learn to love him? How can I possibly care for my neighbor as much as I care for myself, really? How do I do that? And that's what's in the Bible, and specifically that's what's in tonight's passage, the answer to those two questions. So what's in the Bible? Two things. How to know God, how to love people. Firstly, how to know God. Look at our passage in Timothy again, halfway through verse 15. And Paul says to Timothy, From infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a staggering statement. The Scriptures, that Bible you have in your hand, can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's primarily referring to the Old Testament, but it applies nonetheless to the whole of Scripture. The Bible is a handbook of salvation. Its purpose isn't to give you facts about history and science. Its purpose, its overarching purpose, is to give you facts about salvation. It's to tell you how you can be reconciled to God. Because you know that deep, deep, deep down, all of your efforts are guaranteed to fail. And you know that you face a perfect, holy, just God, and you know that you're guilty. But God is merciful, and he has a plan. He has a plan which the Bible unfolds for us. A plan of redemption. A plan that we see God himself, Jesus Christ, become our substitute and pay the price for our sins and earn our way into heaven for us. And so the Bible, from beginning to end, is about Christ. You see it from the beginning in Genesis 3 where there's already a hint that a Savior will come. Right through to the end of Revelation when we see what will happen when he returns. We could say that the Bible is, is the Old Testament foreshadowing Christ and the New Testament revealing Christ. I'm sure most of you know the analogy. The Old Testament is like a majestic, massive house with the most fantastic furniture and paintings and finish and carpets and everything. But the curtains are drawn and only a few lights are on. And it's really hard to see what's going on amidst the shadows and the dark. The New Testament tears open the curtains and the sun streams in through the massive windows and it reveals everything. The whole Bible, Bible reveals the glory of God, old and new, to anyone who wants to know him. And it develops our faith, a faith which isn't just a feeling. God-given faith involves our knowledge, our submission and our trust in Christ so that through that faith in Christ we can be saved. And that's what Paul means when he says the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They enable us to know God, but they also enable us to love people. So look at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You're converted and you're in a relationship with God, and a number of things will start to happen. God will start to change you. He will start to make you more like Christ. 
He will start to conform and mold your character to be more like his. He will start to fundamentally change your priorities. He will start to give you purpose. He will start to enable you to flourish in a way that you were always meant to but were never able to. And he will start to equip you to love your fellow human being. And he will do this using his word in two ways, which is what Paul explains for us. Firstly, he'll do it by helping you to grasp and understand the truth. And secondly, he'll do it by aligning your life with that truth. That's what the two verses are saying. And Paul uses two pairs of words to get it across. The first pair is about creed. It's about what you believe. And the second pair is about conduct. It's about what you do and how you live. So the first pair, teaching and rebuking, are to do with truth. They're to do with doctrine. They're to do with being taught what is true and having your false beliefs refuted or rebuked, as he puts it. It's about grasping the truth. It's about having your worldview fixed. It's about establishing the right creed in your mind. The second pair that Paul refers to, correcting and training in righteousness, are to do with attitude and with behavior and with conduct. And that word correcting comes from the Greek word for straight. It's to straighten you out, simply. It's about aligning our lives with the truth. So the more you immerse yourself in Scripture... The more familiar you become with what God has said, the more your thinking aligns with God's thinking, the more you're straightened out, the better trained you become to live a righteous life, and the more thoroughly equipped you will be, as he says in verse 17, for every good work, the better you will be able to love people. The Bible is God's word breathed out and given to us. What's in it are the answers to essential how questions. How do I get to know God how can I change to love people? And Paul summarizes that in these two brilliant verses. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If that's what we want, and I'm sure it is, then what must we do? What must we do? And we'll see what Paul told Timothy to do. But before we do that, it'll help us just to think about the situation that these two individuals were in, about their circumstances. Now, Paul was in a really tough spot, and he knew he was out of time. He was imprisoned in Rome, probably in some dismal underground dungeon with just a hole for light and air. He was awaiting trial on trumped-up charges. He was in chains. He was suffering from the loneliness and the cold. We know all of this from other parts of, of Timothy. He was waiting for his execution, and he was probably executed by beheading on the Ostian Way, three miles outside Rome. And he was writing this letter to, letter to Timothy, which may well have been his last. And that's the shadow under which he is writing. If you want a modern-day equivalent, think of a Christian leader in the Middle East imprisoned by eyes. That's the situation he's in. Timothy, well, Timothy was a quiet guy. He's what we'd call an introvert. He was also very faithful. He was a young leader in the church. He had a position for which he felt completely inadequate. He was too young, some people were saying. Wrongly, but they were saying it nonetheless. He encountered hostility from within the church. So in chapter 2, verse 15 of Timothy, he says, Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who 
who have wandered away from the truth. So there were people in the church who were deceived and who were, who were out to deceive others. And Paul warns him of worse to come. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. If the modern-day equivalent of Paul is a Christian leader in the Middle East imprisoned by IS, then the modern-day equivalent of Timothy is a young Christian leader or a pastor who is raised in a strong Christian family and is now leading a hostile church in England. To give you a sense. So what does this Paul say to that Timothy while he's facing death? Chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching. You know about my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings. You know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. In the middle of all these challenges and uncertainties, Paul doesn't give him pious platitudes. He takes Timothy right back to the touchstone of God's Word, and he says, continue in it. Timothy was raised and taught by a faithful grandmother and mother. And then also he was taught by Paul. We know this from chapter 1 in the letter when Paul says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. He encourages Timothy, and he reminds him that from when he was an infant, as a babe, he was taught the scriptures by his mother and by his grandmother. And he knows that they and now Paul are trustworthy, loving people who taught him the truth. Paul knows Timothy is under pressure to accommodate. He knows he's going to be under pressure to compromise. He knows the pressure will be eventually become outright persecution. And his message is very simple. He says, you know who you can trust, so trust what we've taught you. Look at verse 14. Continue, more accurately abide, stay in what you have learned. Stick with it, Timothy. Stick with the scriptures, stick with the breath of God. Let that be your touchstone. Scripture's full of encouragements and warnings just like this. So John, for example, puts it even more strongly. And he gives a warning about people in the church who deny that Christ has come. And he says this in Second John. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue, does not stay, does not abide. Same word as Paul used to Timothy. In the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues, whoever stays in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Those are strong words. The message is simple, but it's clear. If you want to know God, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then stay with the word of God that you were taught. Stay with the truth of God's word and don't be deceived by those who claim to have progressed beyond the word of God. We're very fortunate in this church. 
Many of you are very fortunate to have been raised here from when you were young in an equivalent situation to Timothy by a Lois and by a Eunice. If you don't want to hit bedrock, stay with the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we must do. Stay with the God-breathed word, which with the Holy Spirit's enabling will change you to know God and will change you to love people. I'd like to conclude by reading some of the closing remarks that John Stott makes in his commentary on this, on this, chap, on this book, on this letter. Looking back over this chapter as a whole, we can appreciate the relevance of its message to our pluralist and permissive society. Sometimes one, month one wonders if the church and the world has gone mad. Some Christians are swept from their moorings by the flood tide of sin and error. Others go into hiding as offering the best hope of survival, the only alternative to surrender. But neither of these is the Christian way. As for you, Paul says, as he did to Timothy, stand firm. Never mind if the pressure to conform is very strong. Never mind if you are young, inexperienced, timid, and weak. Never mind if you find yourself alone in your witness. You followed my teaching so far. Continue in what you have come to believe. You know the biblical credentials of your faith. Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even in the midst of these grievous times in which evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, it can make you complete and it can equip you for your work. Let the word of God make you God's own. Remain loyal to it and it will lead you on into Christian maturity. Let's briefly close in a word of prayer. And then I just want to make some closing remarks before I hand back to Clive, if that's okay. Lord, in a few minutes we're going to sing a hymn of praise to you which begin with these words. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Thank you for your word, a firm foundation for our faith. Thank you that you revealed your mind and will to us through your glorious word. Forgive us for being lax in not treasuring it far more than we do and help us to know you more through that word. Help us, as the psalmist says, to delight in your law, to meditate on it, so that we will be like trees planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season and being thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I just wanted to make a few practical remarks about Bible reading, and I'm by no means an authority, but I thought it would be helpful to at least share some of the things that work for me and work for others. And some of this is really stating the obvious, so forgive me uh, for those of you who are, have this well in hand, but it might be helpful for some. There are five brief points in there at the bottom of the handout that I've given you, um, and many would say these are, at least four of them, are the most important points you can have. Firstly, stick to one translation, and a good one. The NIV 84, which is the Pew Bible in front of you, is unfortunately out of print, but it was very good. The HCSB, the Holman, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the New King James are all reliable, are all accurate, are all trustworthy. And if you have a study Bible like the Reformation Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible, they're also very, very helpful. 
Bibles like this, the, the Common English Bible, the New, New Living Translation, the Message, and modern-day NIV translations are useful for reference but have compromises. So the first ones I've mentioned are to be preferred. There are some fantastic apps out there. The main ones I'm familiar with are Logos, which is very deep and very complex but very rich, but at the same time difficult to use. Olive Tree, which is easy to use but slightly dated in the design and New Bible, which is a fantastic design, but hasn't got as much material. So the combination of the three would be perfect. Unfortunately, you don't have that. Uh, but there are many others as well. So that's the first thing, a strong translation. Secondly, a plan. Um, I've given you a link to a website at the bottom, which basically is part of one of my Dropbox folders. And there's enough Bible study plans there to keep you busy for a long time. Um, there are also Bible study notes available from the bookstore. Personally, I found Bible study notes are excellent, are helpful, but it would be a mistake for them to become the primary source of your reading. They need to be supplementary to you reading through God's Word according to a plan. There's an approach called SOAP, which I came across a few years ago, which I found very helpful. We all need some SOAP every day. So. Um, it's just an acronym. It stands for Scripture Observation Application Prayer. There's more info on the site, but essentially all it is is when you've, when you've read Keep a notebook or keep a journal if you're a guy, a diary if you're a girl. Guys shouldn't be writing their notes and their journals in little pink things with locks on them and whatnot. Anyway, um, keep, your note, keep something that you get, a notepad, any piece of paper is fine. But keep something where once you've read the passage you've read, I've often found while you're reading through a Bible, reading through Scripture and you're going through and you're, you're working according to a plan, it can quickly and easily become a rote because we get easily distracted. This helps to break that. Essentially what you do is you take a passage that either you had a question about, that struck you, that worried you, that you didn't understand, that was new for you, whatever it is, you write it down, you write your observation down, you write down how you think it applied to you, short one-word sentence, you know, short sentences, and you write down a prayer for it. As that accumulates over time, you'll be amazed at what you look back at in your own life and how things have gone. That's a fantastic way of, of operating. Uh, fourthly, a routine. For me, mornings are better. I found a trick a long time ago, which is eat breakfast and read the Bible at the same time. You get two meals in one, and after a while, it feels weird eating breakfast without reading a Bible. Okay? And lastly, but importantly, a friend. Get somebody that can encourage you. Get somebody who can support you, who can pray for you, who can even help hold you accountable, hold each other accountable, that at least over time you are reading. All of that is um, at that site below, and I'm very happy to answer questions or take suggestions for additional information to go into it. Thank you.